Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good afternoon, beautiful people. I hope you all get ready for this wonderful episode featuring John Stasevich. He's running for office of president of the United States as an independent candidate. Please check out his official website at www.johnstasevich2024.com. The information is in the link details below, and you can also help him gain ballot access if you like his conversation afterwards. Thank you, and enjoy the show. His name is John Stasevich. He is a native of the great state of Michigan, and he's currently located in a city called Boyne City, Michigan. Um, I think I got that correctly. And uh, he has an honorable, special distinction right now because he's running as an independent for the office of president of the United States in 2024. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kiko. I appreciate you accepting that invitation uh, graciously. I have a lot to um, talk to you about. I've checked out your um, your videos and all your interviews that you've conducted. Um, I think for my audience in particular, they would love to know a little bit about who John Sasevich is, considering that I think you are relatively new on the scene as far as um, the social media presence for your campaign. Right. So, you know, I'm a working class guy and I've spent my entire life working. I've always followed politics and have been interested in politics. But, you know, life gets in the way. So I've never actually run for public office. Um, so I think it's kind of historic to have a working class guy running as uh, for president. And I started right at the top because I felt that was the only place I could make a difference. And being 71, I don't have any time oh. <laughs> after my work career to build up to it. <laughs> but um, but that would be historic. So for successful, having a working class president that's actually worked his entire life raise the family and understands the challenges that we all face, um, I think is key. And the other thing is being an independent. Um, you know, I think that our country has to be united. But getting back to your question, um, well, united in the sense that I think an independence is the only one that can because the partisan candidates have always promised to unite us, but actually it's gone the other way. So they, they're not effective. And I think an independent could. But I started working at in seventh grade. I started delivering newspapers in my local community, which is just outside of Detroit, a suburb of Detroit. And um, so I, I, I grew up in Michigan um, and I've been here my entire life. Um, so I started selling newspapers. Then as I was going through high school, I started working at local gas stations and pizzerias. So I delivered pizza. I worked at restaurants and I cooked. I learned to make pizza. I ended up driving a wrecker and then managing the night shift of a gas station before I uh, got through high school. So here I was uh, closing down the thing at like 12 o'clock, 1230 mm -hmm. and walking nine blocks with a big bag of money under my arm. <laughs> <laughs> so those were different times anyway. Well, yeah. actually, you know, the community I grew up in, the police cars had a, a, a slogan on the side of them. It said here to serve. 
or okay. here to help you. Wow. Yeah, they weren't unmarked. We knew who they were. And we knew okay. what their what their intention was because it was written on the side of their cars. But so then, um, you know, after high school, I start working for a stock brokerage and I, you know, started in the mail room and I, so I've done that. And I worked for the county I was in and the drain commission and I cleaned drains. And then I went, uh, I went to, I was in the military for about a year, but I was a conscientious objector in the military. Okay. So that, that's a completely uh, unique experience. I did get out uh, after a year with an honorable discharge. So I had to go through this long process. That was kind of painful to be quite honest with you. Um, but then after that, um, I went back to school and I got a degree in digital electronics, or I'm sorry, in automotive technology. And I started working um, actually for Ford Motor Company. I was trained to be a technician, but it was in the, uh, the 70s. And I don't know if you remember, but we had very much like now, big inflation numbers, double digit yeah. inflation, double digit unemployment. It was, it, was, it was a miserable time to be in the United States. And plus we were just coming out of the Vietnam War, which you know, that was a, that was a enormous failure for the United States from my perspective. And I think mm -hmm. today most people share that view. So then, uh, so I worked at uh, Ford and assembly plant. I started spray painting cars and then became a production supervisor as soon as the position opened. And I felt, you know, it was better to be in the company and get a foothold. And then maybe I could move up into what I was actually trained to do. But uh, as time went on, I, I became more interested in electronics. So I went back to school and got a degree in digital electronics. And Ford actually, for the first time in history, shut down their truck plant. And when they did, I lost my job. Oh. So I was on unemployment, but I got, I got my degree in digital electronics. I went to work for uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which was the largest uh, computer company, at, second largest at the time behind IBM. Uh, and uh, I did that for about eight years. And then I transitioned into sales. They had a, uh, a field sales program and I won it for some strange reason, uh, but they wanted their engineers selling the professional services because we were closer to the clients every day. So okay. it was a sales program they run. And then a, a sales uh, manager came to me and said, have you ever thought about going to sales? And I said, no, not really. But he uh, took me under his wing and I transitioned into sales. And then I ended up working for a series of large software companies including uh, Computer Associates, which was the second largest. And they, most of their software was mainframe software, ran on mainframes. So the software we sold controlled big data centers. And then I got into uh, communications and uh, networking um, through my career and then professional services and software sales with a variety of different companies after that. And then I, my, I so I have a son and a daughter my daughter, she's a, uh, she's got a master's degree. She's a speech pathologist mm -hmm. and she works in her local school district uh, to um, she's actually doing preschool assessments to make sure that the school is prepared for the needy kids that are coming in, the kids that need special care. And so she does that assessment. And then my son is a biophysicist and he's a professor at Colorado state actually. Um, so, you know, through all this, I was also have my family, but my daughter was beginning her career. And so I basically, um, during the dot-com bubble, the company I was working for went from, I don't know, $66 a share down to $2 a share. So they were in a process of laying people off. And again, I was facing a layoff. And so I decided to stay and, and watch my grandkids. So I kind of took a early retirement and I watched my grandkids until 
all of them were in, in for a variety of, I started out doing three days a week. And then uh, toward the end, I was getting down to two or one day a week because I went back to school then after that and um, went into nursing. So I got a degree in nursing and then I went to work at uh, University of Michigan Hospital as a registered nurse on the neurology unit, did that for nine years. And then I retired for the second time at 66. Well, so you're kind of a jack of all trades. Oh, I'm a I'm a working class guy, I guess you could say. <laughs> and and you're saying that this is unprecedented as far as a person has not come from that background running for the office of president. I'm sorry, what was the question again? So you're saying that no one else has ran from a working class background as president? Um, well, not going right to the presidency. And correct. And, okay, and as what you're saying. And then as an independent, I mean, the last person that I, well, I guess you could say Ross Perot might fit that. Mm, yeah. Right. Um, I, I mean, he worked. Um, he was an owner of a company, but yeah. So in a way, I think it's rather historic. Um, oh, it's definitely historic because when you say you never ran for public office before, what made you go automatically from not having any sort of public office experience to run for president? Well, I think my experiences um, are exactly what a president should have. Having raised kids, having faced the challenges, making sure they're successful, I know what's required and I've done it. So it's not theoretical to me. And so I think that the president who is the leading, uh, well, the leader of the nation has got to understand exactly what the population is going through because at least in theory, uh, he's supposed to represent their interests. And so if somebody's not actually done all of the things I've done, can they really relate or are they in a bubble? My, my perspective is that they're in a bubble and they truly don't understand what we go through as working class people in trying to raise healthy, productive children. And, mm -hmm. and as far as I'm concerned, um, although we've had some success, I think the nation is going in the wrong way. And then what's even worse is that I think that the people are divided and actually pointing the finger and blaming one another. And yet we know we don't really have any power. We're not the ones with the power. We don't even have representation in Washington. I think the representative, the people who are represented are the people with the deep pockets and the special interests. So one of the things I wanted to do as president is be a president that would actually represent the people. And for those in Congress who seem to pay no attention to what we want based on polls, um, I think that we need to have an activist president that's either go, that's going to challenge them to get the special interest money out of the political system so that we can have something uh, truer to our you know democratic ideals mm -hmm. and um, for those that feel they're in it for the money and in it to enrich themselves instead of actually serve the American people I'm going to be an activist president working to remove them from public office mm -hmm. so is there any other meaning behind that? Because when you say activist president, um, and I know talking to some people that are around you, they, they say that wordsmithing is, is a really important um, approach considering that you're trying to really, um, you have a broad outreach of possible voters um, supporting you. So um, do you think that they may turn off a segment of your potential supporting base? Um, it may, it may. I mean, but I think that, uh, well, one of the things that the, you know, I would argue that we are actually living in an oligarchy. Um, 
Oh, you you're definitely right about that. <laughs> and, and so and so what I the, from my perspective, there's been a class war. And so they these them and the corrupted parties that they basically own now um, have done an excellent job at keeping the working class divided. So I view this as a class war. Now, personally, I don't have enemies and I don't blame people because I think we're all operating within the context of a capitalist system. And that's the way it works because that's the way it was designed to work. Um, so if you think about our economic system, it concentrates wealth. And when it concentrates wealth, that means it concentrates power because those people with that wealth are not using it to improve the conditions of our society or the world. They're doing it to enrich themselves. And so we see that most of the legislation that's passed is passed with them in mind and their interest in mind. So. I kind of asked that question because I noticed that you've mentioned being an activist president, but I was watching your video on your official site and you said that you made it a point that you will work with progressive Democrats. But do you think that that kind of insinuates that that's a position where you're leaning more towards that angle or are you more of a person you're willing to work with anybody possible as a coalition builder as opposed to trying to leverage through a segment of the Democratic Party? Right. Well, I think that's um, so, you know, what we're talking about doing, removing the money from politics is, is job number one. And it's a it's a big task and and I can't do it alone. I need everyone. And so I'm going to work across uh, across party lines. So when I said I'd work with progressive Democrats, frankly, I mean progress in the sense that our people's lives get better, progress in that sense. You know, so I would define progressive as policies that are going to better the lives of the American people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I will work with anyone progressive. And I don't think that just goes for progressive Democrats. It also goes for others, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I when I look at the way we've been divided, the you know the politicians have been very successful at doing it, and and I think in the '60s when I was growing up in Detroit, um, in '68 we actually had race riots. We had tanks rolling down the street in uh, Detroit, right? Military tanks, and so that was a very you know that was a big moment. It was a a, a, a it's a wake-up call for, for the United States of America. We had to start and begin facing our history and um, the racial divides that were created, the economic divides, most importantly, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so socioeconomics matter a lot. And I think at that moment in time, what the oligarchy did is they realized they have to they have to empower some people in the black community. So in, from the way I look at it, what's happened is a certain segment of the black community has been placed in positions of power and have been, you know, relatively successful and economically successful. But now I find that the black community is, is it's not a monolith like we used to think of it that way, but it certainly isn't. And so, um, so some of the representatives, black caucus, being an example, are not really working for the black community. Barack Obama, I voted for him. I worked in his campaign. I went door to door. I was on the phone and I, I was really excited about him being, and I, all of the promise, all of the hope was, you know, I placed in him. 
And to my chagrin and, and to great disappointment, he didn't do anything to improve relations. But, you know, I know that, especially from my medical background, that we're all related, we're all interconnected, and in fact, we're all cousins, and DNA proves it, you know. We have to, in order to succeed, just like, you know, any family, you have to be on the same page, you have to be working together, and you have to prioritize what's most important, okay? So if I think about our nation, what's most important for everybody across political uh, ideologies and, um, and partisan lines, and even economic lines, everybody um, feels that they want what's best for their children, for future generations and their families. They wanna make sure that they've got what they need, the basic requirements so that they're healthy and happy, can be productive, not only self-sufficient and can thrive, but can give something back to the community and can feel part of something bigger than themselves. I mean, that's the hope I think of every parent. And so that crosses all boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my message. My message is that I want the United States government not to work for the special interest. I want it to work for the American people and not just the American people. I want to go beyond our borders. I want to work for the world. I, I, I look at what we do today. I see the wars that we've been engaged in my entire life and they're essentially conducted for profit, not mm -hmm. our profit, but the profit of a few. And they are so destructive. So we can't talk about human rights within our border unless we're willing to show it across uh, outside of our border. So we have to start living up to our ideals and we haven't been doing that for a very, very long time. Maybe never, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that my message, so I don't place blame on anyone because again, they're working within the context of the system. So for those, for those people in the Senate and in the, con and, and, uh, the House of Representatives, for those politicians who have gotten accustomed to enriching themselves and having all of this special interest money going to their coffers, I'm gonna challenge them to reject that and, and, and enshrine in law um, publicly funded elections. I don't want private money in our political system at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I've challenged CEOs and, and special other special interest groups, hang on to your money, focus on what you're designed to do. I'm, I'm quite sure that, you know, if, if, if the corp, if a corporate American leadership focused on what's most important to them, and that's developing the products and services, um, that's where they're, that's where they should be focused. And so I'm asking them to stop corrupting our system. And I think that most of them are going to come. So I'm going to get allies, I think, from across the board. There was a recent interview, I don't know if you saw it from uh, Ray Dalio, and actually it was a Andrew Yang that had interviewed him. Mm -hmm. Now, Ray is one of the most successful hedge, uh, hedge funds managers ever. And he recognized the fact that our system is very unjust and unfair, that capitalism just simply isn't working for our population. He recognizes that. And he wants to do something about it. So, so some of the things, going back to the idea of I would support progressive Democrats, I think some of their legislation that I would support is legislation 
that's a step in the right direction. It's not the total solution, but a step in the right direction. And so if there's legislation that's going to help families out, I'm going to be supportive of it, anybody that proposes it. But yet, there's, that's within the context of a much larger transition. We have to transition our entire economic system um, mm -hmm. so that it does work. Uh, see, at the very heart of capitalism, there's tension and conflict. You have on one side, you have a, a buyer, and he wants the best price. And on the other side, you have a seller, and he wants the highest profit. So that's mm -hmm. conflict. That's, that's just the opposite of working cooperatively and collaboratively, okay? And yet we know any team, any team whatsoever, let alone the whole nation, to succeed and to prosper has got to work together. So I'm asking all of our voters to put our families first, to put those at the very top of the agenda and to reject all of the wedge issues that have been created mm -hmm. that divide us along racial lines, party lines, gender lines, religious lines, you name it. Mm -hmm. We are everybody. So there are some things that are more important to everyone and it's our economic, social and environmental health, right? Because if we can do that, then we will all do better. And so I think we have to transition to a system where in capitalism, it concentrates wealth into very few hands. We just have a small group of people that decide our economic future. So all the decisions are made by a few and all of us must live with the results. I wanna flip that on its head. We need to transition to a system that spreads ownership as widely as possible. And I like Richard Wolf's um, perspective, which is let's put the ownership into the hands of the workers, like worker co-ops, where the mm -hmm. workers have a vote and they have a decision. So I think when, when, when faced, when, when you provide them with the information, I trust that the American people will make the best decisions, especially when we know, recognize that we're on the same team, we need each other and we're interdependent. So that's the long-term transition. So in the short term, I'm gonna be working with progressive people, regardless of where they come from. And I'm gonna try to pe bring people together. So one of the major things that my campaign wants to do is begin the conversation. So I've got my website where I, I begin, you know, and I, I have interviews like this that I'll have posted on there so people can begin to understand what I stand for and what my campaign wants and how it relates to them. And, um, and then I'm gonna have a YouTube channel and I'm gonna bring people in from all walks of life and we're gonna have conversations, respectful, open, public conversations. Okay, so I have some follow-up questions, and I love that. And I love that you don't beat around the bush. You dive right into the issues. You hit on the uh, campaign finance reform, which um, I think most working-class people, people who aren't into politics, I think most people would say from the outside looking in that money basically dictates how people, how the lobbies run the system, how the two-party system. Um, basically advocates for whatever issues they want to advocate for based on the money and the donors to give them, you know, all that financial support. And so I think getting money out of politics is one of the most important steps as far as um, going forward for any hope in this system. I think another part um, that I think of based on what you were saying is the visibility aspect. 
I think those two are together. You talked about capitalism and how it captures um, this whole mindset of just funneling money up top. But that also includes the visibility of the third party candidates and the lack of visibility thereof. And so you have the suppression of, of media, independent media especially, suppression of any ideas that go outside of the two-party philosophy. And so how do you, um, number one, combat the ballot access um, issue? Because that's been an issue over the years for third-party candidates getting on the ballots. And then how do you get on the major television networks, not just these sort of forums like this that are more intimate, but how do you spread your message beyond um, YouTube independent channels? Well, there have been candidates, um, independent candidates, third-party candidates who have been successful. I mean, Jesse, uh, Jesse Ventura was successful becoming a governor. He was independent, right? And uh, we saw what Bernie Sanders did. So, of course, I need to reach every single person. And there's not just one, one approach to doing that. Thankfully, the mainstream media viewership has been going down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so its reach is, is uh, decreasing. And then we have people like uh, yourself and Jimmy Dore and Joe Rogan who are, are going through social media and they have a tremendous reach. It's growing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one avenue for me to get my message out and to share my vision and to ask those who agree with my vision to join my campaign. And what I really need, you know, I mean, we're in, these are very tough economic times for the American people. People are struggling every day. There's a lot of people that can't afford to donate anything to any campaign. They're just, they're just living pay to pay trying. I don't want their money, but what I would ask them to do is to help get me on the ballot. And so every state has uh, different rules for ballot access. Some states, there's a fee, some states, there's a fee and uh, uh, petitions that the voters have to sign to get their candidate on. Some have uh, both. And uh, so every state has different rules. On my website, I've got a form that anyone can go to and they can sign up for to say, I'm willing to help you get on a ballot. When that petition in my state is released, I'm willing to sign it. And so when I build that database, I'll be able to reach out to those people in that particular state during the window of opportunity, when the state says, okay, between this date and that date, we are now opening up for the ballot petition process. And so I'll ask a lot of them to keep those petitions at their homes and so that their neighbors, and so I could publish back out to everybody and say, here's all the locations, let's say in your state, Tennessee, you might have a neighbor right down the street from you that is agreed to do that. And all you have to do is walk down the street and sign the petition. So I don't want to just meet the state's requirements. I want to triple, quadruple, or you know, exceed them by a great, great margin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know Bernie Sanders used to say it's about us, not me. It truly is. He was right about that. And 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 that's what my campaign is about, all of us, you know. And I, so I'm asking everyone to get back engaged in the system. A lot of other people just completely dropped out of the political system out of sheer disgust. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't know anyone that I talk to that doesn't recognize the fact that the system is corrupt. And they really are opposed to that. And that the so I'm asking them to do something to change it. I want to empower people. I want them to let I want to let them know we're the 99 strong. Mm -hmm. 99 
to one. We're strong. We've got the power if we choose to use it. I'm asking people to step forward and use it. And then there are other people who are going to have some money, uh, extra money to contribute to my campaign, because naturally it costs money for any campaign. I don't envision that I'm going to need $1.2 billion like Trump and uh, Biden use. (laughs) (laughs) I think I could do it for a lot less. (laughs) Okay, so that's one route. Okay, social media. Another another way I, I really have to, uh, we have to engage people is, is the old time grassroots, face to face, mouth to mouth, go to your friends, go to your family, go to your neighbors, sit in a public space, like in front of the post office, engage people, engage people in your community, bring them in, explain what we're trying to do, explain, uh, you know, the ideas that we've discussed, how we are interdependent, how we need each other to succeed, okay? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, my personal experience in doing that, just engaging strangers in public places has been extremely positive. Everybody I've talked to pretty much agrees with me, at least those that will engage. Some people, of course, won't won't even bother to engage. They don't want to talk to you. But I think as time goes on and as the message gets out, I think it's a very strong message. I've had a positive response, and I think that people will find they'll get a positive response, too. They just have to engage respectfully. Okay, I want to follow up on that. You said about the response you're getting. The example you used that I've um, heard you cite so far is the interview you did with Truth Bomb Activists. You did, you said something about you basically did a, a, a test run in your community and you got a very positive response. Have you gotten mm-hmm. responses outside of your community, just talking to everyday people that would consider your campaign? Oh, absolutely. It, it doesn't matter where I go in in everywhere that I've traveled to, when I engage people and I do it in a respectful way, like I I might ask the question, uh, just an open-ended question. As you look at our nation today, how do you think things are going? Do you think we're headed in the right direction? Okay, I might start a conversation like that. Mm -hmm. And almost without exception, people say, no, no, we're not. And then I can engage and say, well, how would you like to, what would you, what do you think the problem is? How would you change it if you had the power? If you could ma- wave a magic wand, what do you want our nation to look like? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of community do you want to raise and society do you want to raise your children in or your family? What, you know, what do you and your friends want? Mm-hmm. What's important to you? What are your values? So I'm asking people to look in the mirror and recognize that you know, basically we get what we earn. Mm -hmm. So we have to engage. We have to make the choice to engage if we want a better society and a better life. Um, It's just a fact. If you don't, you're relinquishing the power that you actually have to others who are more than happy to take it as Mm -hmm. we've seen. And so that, you know, so so yeah, I think uh, I think that we are more united than the mainstream media would let on. I mean, in, in some sense, we're not, and people do blame each other. I'm really trying to get people to understand that the blame game just doesn't help anyone mm-hmm. um, because people are all doing the best they can within the context of this system, and they're doing their best trying to survive. And I think when people do things that are uh, not as helpful to our community and our society, 
I don't think it's intentional. And so then why would I want to blame them? I just want to engage them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, before we go into some um, issues, not issues that I have personally, I don't. Um, you don't have don't any want, personal issues? I don't want to frame it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but there are some things that stood out on your um, campaign site that I want to talk about. Okay. You have to deal with um, the Presidential Commission of Elections. You have to deal with the Federal Election Commission. You have to deal with all these um, duopoly bodies that have created the rules that, that stack everything against people like yourself. Um, you have to get such a presence. I think it's 15% for you to get onto the debate stage. Is that is that what the statistic is? Because that's well, kind of what I was asking earlier, like just getting to, to that debate stage with all those other candidates as an independent, which you will stand out because you wouldn't be running. You're basically a free agent of change. You're running by as yourself. You, you're not tied to special interests. So um, how would that work as far as getting to the debate stages? Well, you know, we don't have to let them set the agenda. I'm going to have my own debate stage. I'm going to invite them to mine. Right? Okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> you know, who, who, gave them the, who gave them that right? We are the 99 strong, right? Mm -hmm. They're the 1%. Um, so we're going to invite them to talk to us and, and I'm going to invite other candidates and I'm going to invite people from all walks of life. I want to talk to doctors. I want to talk to nurses and teachers. I want to talk to people who are engaged in real life, who make a difference, who, who produce the goods and services that, you know, that we all depend on. And, and I'm going to talk to the people who are the capitalists. I want them involved. I'm going to invite Ray Dalio. I'm going to invite Richard Wolf to talk about economics. I'm going to, I want, I want professors. I want everybody involved in a conversation. Now, will the major party candidates come on stage with me? I don't know. I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. It's up to them. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the American people are going to be with me when they understand the message. So the bigger challenge to me is getting it out to the American people. I don't think it's absolutely necessary that I get on their stage, let okay. them set the agenda, right, for us. Mm -hmm. um, because we all know what we want. It's this, you know, what I'm talking about is a universal value. Mm -hmm. It goes throughout the entire world. But they've been effective because they're well organized, right? We've got the ability in the United States uh, we got the communications networks. We've got, you know, well, relatively well-educated people, uh, you know, historically. And I think that uh, my, I have faith in the American people. I know that when you give people the information, a straight scoop, they almost will always make the right decisions. So mm -hmm. if, if, if that's where my faith lies. So I don't really care what those that have, you know, an outside agenda, a self-serving agenda do. I'm not, I'm not going to focus my campaign on what they do. I'm going to focus my campaign on what we want. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, and it's not just what I want. It's truly what we want because I'm bringing people in. So when we open the discussion, so for instance, I would say, I want Medicare for all well, not everybody understands what that means. Some people think, oh, you mean you want what the retirees have? No, 
I want what the retirees have. Plus, I want good vision coverage. I want good mental health care coverage. I want to cover all of the aspects of human health. Dental has got to be included because you, if you ignore dental health, that can end up with real health issues, cardiac issues, okay, as an example. So in order to have healthy and productive people, you have to take care of all of the aspects of human health, mm -hmm. including mental human health. And you have to start very early. So I've spent a lot of time studying developmental human psychology. Psychology was one of my majors, one of the things that I've always been interested in, even outside of the classroom, I'm always interested in understanding how do we work? You know, how do people work? How do we think? And how do we act? So, you know, cognitive human psychology, developmental human psychology, and behavioral psychology. So I've gotten to understand a lot more than I did when I was younger, obviously. Um, but I applied those principles even then to help my children to realize that they have potential. And all they have to do is commit to it, believe in it, and work for it. And it'll come. And it did come for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true for everybody. Now, we don't necessarily have exactly the same potential, but everybody has a place and can contribute. And they, if they decide to contribute and work for the common good and work to have a high quality life, I think they deserve a high, uh, you know, an adequate income. So, you know, I know they're always talking um, in the mainstream media about, what should be the minimum wage? Oh, well, the, yeah. minimum, the minimum wage should be what, what a family needs to be healthy. It should be enough to meet all of their basic needs, their housing, their health care, all their, their to get good nourishment. All of those things that you need to raise a healthy family and a healthy individual, that's what you need as a minimum income. So that's how we would establish that for my mind. But more importantly to me is not the minimum income, but the maximum wealth. I want to know, I want to open that discussion, like, at what point does it become absurd to go beyond? Uh, we could argue the amount. Some people might say, okay, you know, having a million dollars should be enough, or five million or 10 million. Well, we could debate, you know, what should be the upper limit. But between the, you know, so we want everyone to be secure financially secure, to know that they're, they're not going to be losing their homes when they lose their job, or they're not going to be losing their health care when they lose their job. When people, when society has to shift, and people in one segment of industry are not really serving the needs of mm -hmm. uh, humanity in our society, we want to move them safely to where they will be. So maybe today they're extracting oil from the earth. I don't want them to fear change if we could use you better to build infrastructure we want to move you there and if industry can't do it and the private sector can't do it i want the government to be the employer of last resort to organize and make that happen okay so 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 now once you remove that fear factor and, and people know that they're going to be secure i don't have to worry about whether they're going to close the coal mine right because mm -hmm. i'm not dependent on a coal mine in fact I never said any at any point in my life, what I want to do with my life is extract coal from the earth. <laughs> they didn't want that. What they wanted is to have, have a decent life. <laughs> so, 
So For that's sure. where our focus is going to be. We're going to focus on decent life and we're going to make sure that we transition safely. So that's going to require a transition plan. So those progressive policies that are in place now, I'll support if they help us take the small steps. But we can't just settle for incrementalism. We need the whole enchilada. I tell you. We need a whole enchilada, baby. We must be in some sort of synergy right now because that two things you mentioned before I even asked you the question and you already brought them up. Incrementalism was one. And the other one I was going to segue into Medicare for all or universal health care, um, some sort of a variation of that. Um, by the way, I loved your response that you gave about the visibility aspect with the mainstream media and stuff, you're gonna basically, you're gonna set the form regardless of them giving you one or not. I love the way you just, you own that and you just, it's all, it's on your terms. And I think we need someone that's affirmative like that because I think a lot of these people run very passively and you do have a lot of control yourself. There are things you can do. You can do grassroots organizing. You can do, um, you have the internet. I mean, we all have access to the internet. So it's just the way you use these tools that you already have. Well, unfortunately, we don't all have it, but we all need it. Yeah. And we, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, and and um, yeah, so I, I do empower myself and I know that there are things I can do. There are things I can control and I'm going to control those, right? And I'm going to empower others to do the same thing. And it isn't really about me. It truly is about us. I'm a servant. If, I, if I'm successful and I get into the White House, I'm there as a servant. You know, I'm perfectly fine not doing this. I mean, I'm retired. I have enough income. I'm comfortable. And I could just sit on the beach uh, and enjoy life. Uh, but, you know, I know we can do better. And I felt compelled to do something to make that happen. And so that's why I'm doing this. So I'm here to serve. Well, I'm looking forward to a candidate of your stature uh, taking it to the next level and hopefully offering something for everyday people, something that we truly need. Um, we haven't gotten anything even close to this. And thinking about the universal healthcare aspect, I talked to friends and made the argument when Roe v. Wade was reversed, I made the argument that if we had universal health care, I believe that that decision would have been harder to make because it would have been tied to the healthcare system, abortion, reproductive rights, body rights. And you mentioned that on your platform on the healthcare for all, you say <clears throat> protect a woman's right to bodily autonomy and re reproductive choice amongst other issues, um, rejecting privatization schemes. My question would be for the detractors out there, you're gonna have people saying, how will you pay for um, a program to, to assure healthcare for everybody, where would you take from in order to assure that everyone would have healthcare for all? Well, I mean, I think uh, that in some of the other interviews I mentioned this, but I'll go through it again. You know, uh, if we were to simply copy Germany, who offers healthcare to their citizens and, and world-class healthcare, um, based on the objective healthcare outcomes of every study, they're always number one, two, three, but those Northern European countries, Japan. So there are places in the world they already do it very effectively and very efficiently because as an example, Germany does it for 6,000 per capita or less. By implementing Germany's system here in the United States, just simply copying them, 
we would save $18 trillion every decade. 18 trillion, our national debt's just, it's over 30, maybe approaching 31 trillion. I don't know, the clock's rolling pretty quickly. But we could take that savings and then we could apply it to helping um, with the other transition stuff we have to do. So again, remember that, uh, you know, a lot of the people that have resistance, well, I, I, wanna, I wanna hit on that topic you mentioned about uh, a woman having a body autonomy, okay? I, I think that even Christians that I talk to are pro-life. I, you know, I, I think that they've created a false dichotomy when they say pro-life and pro-choice. Listen, everybody's pro-life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like I'm pro-life and pro-death. It isn't like life and death. Correct. What the real issue is, you know, but they've used that wedge issue to divide us. The real question is, where do you place your trust in, you know, so you want a government bureaucrat telling women what they're going to do with their life? Or do you trust their medical uh, team, their family to do what's best for them? Mm-hmm. You know, I would argue that just simply by um, criminalizing um, abortion, I mean, wanting to put nurses and doctors into jail, that that's the, you can't think of anything much more destructive than that to our society. We need our nurses and doctors, right? And so, um, I, I think to actually be effective in reducing the number of abortions, what we need to do is invest in our people. You have to say to ask yourself, well, how does this young woman get to a point where she has to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Why don't we deal with the underlying issues? Maybe she came from a family that wasn't very supportive and loving. Maybe that family didn't get what they need. See, that would be a, so I would like integrated social service network. We have an integrated and we look down at the family level and decide what is it that's going wrong for this child. We see in the school system, children who are not succeeding, not meeting their, uh, not achieving the way they're, they're capable of achieving, not reaching their potential. And when our teachers recognize that in our schools, we could have a team of social service experts that could come in, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, whatever that child needs, nutritionists, maybe she's not getting good nutrition for him, maybe they're not getting enough sleep. And we recognize that maybe the problem goes back to the family. Maybe the family is dysfunctional. Maybe they're unable or un, unequipped or un, they've not been equipped to raise a child. And so in that case, what we do is let's help the family. Mm-hmm. Let's give that family the tools they need so that their child will be healthy right? And so we're going to focus on that. We do that. And within one generation, all of our children will be achieving their potential. And the families will be happier and healthier as well, right? And now, will we get 100%? Probably not. But boy, we can sure move the needle. We can sure move the needle. So just like a, a if you were a corporation, and you were losing market share and not succeeding, if you weren't effective, what do you do? They do reorganizations. They look at their operation, they reorganize, they restructure for success. That's what we need to do for our, with our government. So if you think about our disparate social service programs, they're patchworks, but you can't patchwork health. You can't say, well, I'm gonna give you the best dental care, but well, nah, you aren't, you're not gonna see a physician or, I'm, or you can see a physician, you're not gonna get the best dental care. Either way you go, if you patchwork it, and if it's not, um, it's not comprehensive, then you're not going to get a good outcome. 
okay? You need mental health, dental health, auditory for some, right? Vision, you need it all. And, 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 and then for those people who've not been equipped to like understand economics, maybe they can't control their economics. Maybe they've got addiction problems, whatever they are, we've got to use our technology and our science and our best minds come together and design a system that'll help them up. We've got to lift them up. Okay. So we're going to identify where we're failing and we're going to design a system to help lift them up. And we've got a lot of brilliant, intelligent people in our society that can help us do that. And so I'm going to bring them all and we're going to have an open conversation discussion publicly. And we're going to provide the American people with the information and then they're going to make the choice and they're going to tell us which way to do it. I want to piggyback on the comment you made about um, mirroring more or less the German healthcare system. Now, just to be clear, I believe that that system um, still allows you to buy into private insurance, but I think that's less than 10% of the situations. And from what I interpret, I think once that person loses their job, they're automatically covered under the public healthcare system. Is that more or less the way the German system works? That's at least what I've heard over the years. Well, I, I don't know the specifics, mm -hmm. but I do know that they, they have much, they, their objective healthcare outcomes for their population are high where ours are low and their cost is, is low and ours are high. So mm -hmm. I don't know the specifics. Every nation does it differently and you're right. Most of them are a blend of public service and private. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I imagine when we design, when we come together and we design the system that we want, I don't know how, what we're gonna end up with, but we're gonna, we're gonna move the needle and we're gonna do much better than we're doing now. Um, and, and, the, and the big thing, like I said earlier, those that are resistant to change, they're not resistant to change. Um, I think they're resistant to change because they have fears about how it's gonna impact them. So if we can alleviate those fears and help them transition and make sure they understand, you're gonna be safe, your family's gonna be protected. We're gonna make sure you have the income you need as we train. It, it may mean that you go back to school and re-educate yourself for a while, maybe, um, you know, but we can help them transition into a place. So there's gonna be an investment, but you know, the difference is we're gonna be investing in ourselves. We're not gonna make investments that are gonna serve only a tiny group of oligarchs. Mm -hmm. I have some um, questions about other issues that you um, touch on. One in particular I wanted to get to about uh, criminal justice reform and the drug war. Mm -hmm. um, you can't have to combine those two together because they're so related. Mm -hmm. You are clearly first pro First Amendment based on reading your um, information because the first thing you say is you reject censorship. Um, I, here at Kiko's Free Fingers Forum, we're very much pro First Amendment. We believe that information should be public, and um, and all these rationalizations and justifications uh, for people to get their accounts taken down and stuff. To me, is just that's just covering up for censorship, that you're just covering for censorship when you do stuff like that. Um, I don't think your views are 100% are clear on the Second Amendment. Where do you stand on the Second Amendment as far as gun ownership? Because I talked uh, on episode five with the activist Jay Carrico, and we talked a lot about gun ownership. Liberals a lot of times use gun control all the time. It seems like it comes up when there's a mass shooting 
but in communities that reflect the people that look like me, there tends to be less talk about the guns being taken away, especially in the mainstream media. Um, but I kind of question to those people, what, who do you think is going to have the guns when they take them away from everybody else? Who's going to have control of those guns? And so you can argue a lot of different ways. I just kind of want to know where you stand on um, the issue of gun ownership. Well, I have a personal opinion and, and we'll, we'll discuss that. But um, I think we can see, um, you know, we have, a, we have an issue with guns. All of the mass murders, uh, the United States far exceeds gun violence. Uh, our, our, our statistics are off the charts compared to other nations around the world. So we clearly have a problem. I think everybody would recognize that. That's just a fact. It's an objective fact. And so I think we have to open the discussion of what to do. I do believe that people should have the right to own a gun if that's what they choose to do. Just like I believe they should have the right to own a car. If, mm -hmm. Right? Um, but guess what? To drive the car, you need to take driver's ed. You have to learn <laughs> yeah. how to drive it safely. <laughs> you know what? So when it comes to guns, you know, you keep a gun in your home and there are young children around there. I don't want those kids getting that gun and and making them accidentally killing themselves with it. So you need, if you're going to have a gun and you're going to place yourself in that position of responsibility, then you need to be trained on storage, effective. So we're going to we're going to figure out how we can do it and do it safely. Now, in terms of those that uh, carry guns in the street, I think a lot of that is fear-based, right? And so they fear that other people are out to hurt them in some way. And so it's because of that fear. And they feel separated and they blame other people and they think they're under attack. All these things come together. So the, the guns in the street and the, the violence that we have is a symptom of a disease system, right? We have to go after the cancer. We got to go to the root cause if we want to stop the symptoms. So that's an issue I think that we're going to work on over time. I think that most gun owners recognize, well, most of them are responsible. Right. And uh, and maybe they've come from a family and they've been cultured in such a way. And it's a healthy family. But for those kids that are carrying AR-15s in the streets and blowing away, uh, you know, classrooms of children and teachers. They have an obvious mental problem. So something happened in their development. They're not healthy. They're not happy. And they're certainly not productive. They're destructive. Everybody's got to recognize that problem, but let's get to the root of it. So what was it that brought this child, this 18 year old into the school with an AR-15? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. right? That's where we're going to go. And so we're going to open that conversation. And there's, there's so fundamentally, you know, that's not unrelated from human health. So all of these things start playing on each other. That's why we need, need a comprehensive health plan, which includes mental health. hundred percent. No, I totally get that. Yeah, I just, um, I appreciate you clarifying that position because um, I know that there's so many different issues. You prioritize the ones that, you know, as you see fit. And then over time, obviously there are gonna be more questions that come up. And so I just wanted to slip that one in because I feel like when we talk about this whole idea of encroachment of um, freedoms that's been coming up a lot lately, I think those two are sort of related. You know, I think people are worried about, okay, where's the agenda? Is, is there gonna be some sort of a, 
because that's always it's fear-based like you said there's always people always say oh they're going to take our guns and stuff i mean it's always this ploy that's used and um it, i think it's just but people do need the reassurance i think so that they do know where the person stands on the issues and so that's why i asked you that question the incrementalism comment that you made that's a word that really bothers me and I've had to educate my friends over the years what that means, incrementalism. You see it all the time with the duopoly. The duopoly survives because of incrementalism. That's how the duopoly survives. Um, just like the $10,000 loan forgiveness plan is a classic example of incrementalism. Instead of canceling all the student debt, you're simply dropping coins in a bucket to give people the impression that you're changing their lives when it comes to their education. Just in conveniently just in term for in time for the midterms how does that work you know like that and and the people that i don't think question that stuff enough i was reading your site and i don't think that it's meant to be incrementalist at all but i was reading about the hr 1280 which is the george floyd justice act that was um, passed in the house last year as part passed in march of 2021 mm -hmm. um and it talks about um some reforms when it comes to police conduct and um, which we should do with the violent um, situations when the police are doing it to the citizens. I have, um, I do take issue with the part in that particular bill that says it limits qualified immunity as a defense to a liability in a private civil action. I would argue, and a lot of people who even are libertarians, a lot of libertarians, a lot of people across the aisle um, or for just ending qualified immunity, um, period. W where do you stand on that as far as limiting the immunity as opposed to just ending it as a whole? Because we know that the, pol the police unions are very strong in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that the police are as fearful as everybody else. Let's face it, you know, they've got families too. And they go into the streets. Um, they never know when they leave their home if they're going to be coming back at night. And I know their families worry about it. Um, Again, I don't like to place blame and I don't like to attack people who are trying to do the right thing, but they're, they're working in a context of a society that has a, well, you know, a lot of this violence really impacts the uh, black community more than it does, uh, you know, many others. Uh, and it's because of our history. So, you know, that, that George Floyd Act is, is an example of incrementalism. And so, you know, in the short term, in the short term, there may be some things that we do that, you know, it's not exactly what I want. So like I said, there are some things I'm going to support in the short term only because it moves us in the right direction. It's not at, but at the same time, you know, we're going to, we're going to transition. So you can't disconnect that violence uh, and the uh, animosity between communities and policing mm -hmm. from an, from a, uh, from the economic system, from our healthcare system, from our, um, you know, unjust capitalist system. Um, it's unjust for everybody. You know, there'll be a certain um, amount of policing that's gonna have to happen. But I don't know why policing isn't just, uh, uh, as we think about the kind of society we want and we redesign our social services, I see that policing may be, have a piece of it. So. A police department today may not look in the future anything like it does. It, I, first of all, 
I would like police to actually have be educated in terms of human psychology, understand human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the police department of the future may be staffed mostly with psychologists, people who are familiar with addiction. Um, so most of these problems, um, the violence that they see today and that they engage in, our response to all the injustice, all the socioeconomic injustices that exist, and that even that exists across the board, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's some things short term that we may do. Um, I'm not going to, as president, I would not sign any legislation that didn't move the ball forward. I mean, I may, may be stuck signing some things that I don't think are perfect. I may view them as a as a you know step in the right direction. But you know the, the, the key to all of it, and job number one for me and for all of us is getting the special interest money out of politics. Because once mm-hmm. we get that out, now we've got a democracy. Now we can all together look at the facts. You know, because now what, what, be, what, is, what the government is first and foremost doing is, is looking at the welfare of not an oligarchy, but of the entire public, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we need to restructure all of government, all of social services. Policing is just one component, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we have to do a transition and transitions take time. We're not going to do it overnight, but we need to move into the right direction. Job one is getting the money out. Let's get a true democracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once we get the money out now, Let's look at this. Let's say the CEO, the greedy CEO. He's taking a large chunk out of his workforce's productivity, but the surplus. And his organization, he's got a human resource department, and they have to study all of the different available insurance companies that provide health care. Does he really want to do that? Does he need that headache? No. He just wants to produce a better vehicle or whatever mm-hmm. he does, right? So I would argue that his life will be immensely better when we start transitioning to a system that makes some sense. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of restructuring. Capitalism itself, though, at the very root of it is the problem. Like I said, it, it, it's not based on cooperation and collaboration. If you were, imagine yourself as a, you know, the owner of a football team. And you want that, or a basketball team, you want them to succeed. Can they succeed if they're fighting each other? No. Mm-hmm. They have to cooperate and collaborate. That's where we get the best success. I always like to use the, uh, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, the Hadron Collider as an example. And Lawrence Krauss talks about this. He's a pretty famous physicist. About how it took thousands and thousands of scientists from hundreds of countries speaking dozens of languages to build the most complex machine that man has ever developed. And that machine gives us insight into reality. What is our universe made of? How does it work, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's impressive. Now, that wasn't done in a competitive way. That was collaboration and cooperation across cultures, races, right? Mm-hmm. Think about what we can accomplish when we work together. Absolutely. No. Um... 
I also wanted, I like your answer about the policing. I, I'm one of these type people, um, I'm, I'm conflicted in ways about um, police because I think police do work for the communities that they serve in, the, in certain situations. I think it's a socioeconomic issue because I think most people who live in good, quote unquote, good neighborhoods, they have faith in their police departments. But the problem is that when you're in a downtrodden situation, the police are just another problem on top of your problem. And so they don't see the police as solving anything. They see the police as adding to the adding fuel to the fire. So that's that's the conflict I have when it comes to policing. You have over policing in neighborhoods where policing doesn't solve anything. And then you have the appropriate amount of police in the communities that are more or less functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning. Right. And and I don't know what the breakdown on the stats are. I mean, mm -hmm. if we were to go across and count the number of police in the United States, well, first of all, I think we got way more than we need. I mean, essentially, it looks more like a police state than anything else to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's my personal opinion. <laughs> no, no, you. Hey. You know what I mean? I mean, there's just like, do we need that many police? I mean, you know, think about if if they could be. Um, now, I'm not saying that there isn't a a place for a police function, but they could transform and become, you know, help people with addictions. They could transform into things that would really benefit society, and that's what we want them to do. That's what they want to do. That's why they originally got into that job. They do believe in justice. I've never talked to a police that says he doesn't believe in justice. I mean, I've never met one personally that said that. Uh, as far as I know, their intentions are going in at good at least. Now, when they get in there, if the if the darn department is a corrupt place, and then sometimes they may not even have a choice. They might feel endangered if they didn't go along with that, you know, inside of that structure. So, um, so you know, again, you know, to blame individuals. We know we don't have individual power over this. And we know that the system is unjust and unfair. That's not hard to prove. Um, Princeton did a study showing that based on polls, the working class essentially doesn't get a single thing we want. We've been wanting health care for our families, all families, for as long as I've been alive and it hasn't happened. I'm 71. <laughs> I know people don't want me to tell say my age. Oh, they want to wait. wait till they ask you. Don't don't volunteer your age. You know, just another old white guy. You know. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah. So see, even I have to live with the stereotypes of the system. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but you know what? But I, I will argue this. I will say that uh, older people that have lived a while and experienced a lot—that's where wisdom comes from. In you know, from education experience. And that combined becomes wisdom. And so, you know, I'm a lot wiser today, I'll say, than I was when I was 20. No doubt. Um, I don't think that that should be used against anybody. So you hear that a lot. And I don't think it would be used against people so much if it wasn't for the actions. You know, I think it has to do with the actions. If people are living comfortably, they're not worried about someone in 70 or 35 or 45 or 50. It's just, it's the quality of life that people are having and, and it's just diminishing more and more. Um, ever since you were a child, it, I think you've seen the transitions of just, um, this system is just getting worse and worse each time. And it's not gonna get any better for our generations. 
um, if we don't do something about it. I did want to follow up on the criminal justice reform. There's a stat that scares me every time I look at it. Just the reality is that 40% of Black people, um, over 40% of Black people represent the homeless population in this country. And also in the carceral system, we're 40% of the people who are incarcerated in this system. And so it goes into the whole drug war as well. And I was reading your position on the drug war, and you said that you would decriminalize um, cannabis in particular. Um, my question would be, why not just legalize it fully? Because from my standpoint, um, I see it as people are already, these dispensaries are popping up everywhere in the states where marijuana is legal. And even in states like Tennessee, you see um, the shops popping up, the edible shops and everything else. And people know that it's happening, but they're not cracking down on it or anything. And so who are benefiting from these cannabis businesses is disproportionately why people are benefiting from these cannabis businesses while the blacks are still incarcerated from simple possessions of cannabis and stuff like that. So I guess at this point it's acknowledged that marijuana is very common in our realities. So why not just make it a legal um, drug period as opposed to having it kind of uh, in this stage where yeah, we decriminalize it, but it's not fully legal. Well, I mean, I think there's a whole lot to unpack there um, in what you just said. Um, in, in Portugal, my understanding is that they've had a experience where they decriminalized almost all drugs. So they basically left it up to people. Mm -hmm. And the results that they have is that addictions have gone way, way down. I think most people when given the choice and, and but you know, the, the, some of this is all wrapped in, up in culture. In terms of the criminalizing part of it, I mean, I think that's turned out to be a disaster for the United States. I mean, our, our, we've got the largest per capita prison population in the world. Now, think about the cost of that to our society. Not only do you have to pay to incarcerate that individual, there's that upfront cost that is obvious and easy to calculate. But what about the opportunity loss? How much money did we lose because he's not producing? Had he been healthy, had his needs been taken care of, he wouldn't have been a criminal in the first place. He would have found a healthy outlet for his energy and he would have been self-sufficient. He would have been contributing to society. So you've got the loss of, first of all, incarcerating him. And then you have the loss on the other side, which is the lost opportunity what we could have had had we invested in that individual. In the short term, I'd like to decriminalize drugs completely. That was, is what I want. Oh, but wow. again, okay. like everything else, I think that we're going to have, we're going to have, um, you know, open discussion about that. When it comes to these drugs, I think we want to look to the science. What is the impact? What is the impact? So people have the correct information. They can make their decisions. Do I want to, do I want to, you know, smoke cigarettes? Do I want to, you know, take smoke marijuana? Do I want to, take this that or the other so when the people have the information and they're free and they're and they're secure and not operating out of fear not living in a fear-based culture you know most of everything that happens in our political system is all based on fear you know the democrats are very good at pointing the finger at the republicans and oh my gosh if he's elected you know what's going to happen to your family and it's it's really they 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 paint the picture they create fear uncertainty and doubt in the minds of the voters so that they feel, I have no choice but to vote for a Democrat. Otherwise, 
because they fear the Republican. And the same thing happens in reverse. In reality, as a voter, we all know <laughs> that we're being sliced and diced and segmented. <laughs> you know, and, and in terms of age, which we were talking about earlier, there is age discrimination. There's age discrimination in the workforce. Young people think, oh, gee, why don't you retire? Get the heck out of here so I can have a job. Oh, why can't we all have a job? If a guy wants to work his entire life, he should be able to do it, right? And there still should be jobs for everyone. There's no reason why anyone should be unemployed if they want to work. There's always a place. We have so much to do. Think about our infrastructure. Think about our transportation system, how we could redesign that. The only thing a transportation system does is move you from point A to point B, you and your goods or whatever you want to do. Using the technology that we have today, could we do a better job? I think so. Does private ownership of vehicles make sense? I'd much rather have, if I could have, uh, if I didn't have to store cars in my garage, take them to mechanics and all that, and all that were taken outside of that, and it were just a service for the public. If I could have a car or a truck, whatever I need to move me and my materials from point A to point B, just by going on my phone and ordering it, shows up where I want, when I want, takes me to where I need to go. Maybe it takes me to a train station. I jump on a high-speed rail and I go to New York, you know? So if we start thinking about the technology, but today technology is not used for the benefit of all of us. It's used to the benefit of just these tiny group of oligarchs that control, have the ownership uh, that, that controls all of the major corporations. And so, you know, so people fear technology and yet the technology could work for us in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. We could build a vehicle that go 5 billion miles. We have the technology, we know how to do it. But if any enterprise did it under capitalism, they'd be out of business because their customer wouldn't be returning <laughs> for 20 years. You know, I don't, <laughs> that's not a very good business model <laughs> in a capitalist society, right? But so, so we need, uh, we need to get technology working for all of us. Um, but again, see, it's, 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 so all of these things are interconnected and we need a comprehensive solution in the 21st century that works for everybody. That's the reality. And we all have to get on board for that, but it's not going to happen. And that solution is not going to come from the status quo. They no, may not. recognize the problem, Ray Dalio, but he's not a politician. He doesn't really think about how to solve this problem. He has, probably hasn't given it that much thought because that's not what he does. Warren Buffett, he's just merely great at making money. He's a good investor. Mm -hmm. So it's not his job to change the world. And he probably doesn't want it, you know? Yes. Um, so I don't want to blame Warren Buffett uh, for doing what he thinks he has to do in this society for using his skills. Now, I'd like to talk to him about you really need that much wealth? Couldn't we do something better with that money? Shouldn't it be more democratically controlled rather than you making all the decisions about what's good for America? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is Coke really all that great for America? <laughs> but he for has sure. control. He has control, right? And so it's not, the decisions in the workplace are not democratic at all. It's, it's a uh, autocracy, right? Mm -hmm. Where a handful of people, just like in our society, a handful of people control it all you're just essentially a wage slave. They give yeah. you the wage that they decide. You don't decide what the wages they do. And then you say, well, I have a decision because I don't have to go there. That's right. You could quit. And then you go to another capitalist firm that does it for you too. So, you know, what would the world look like if we had, uh, if, if the government were to support, uh, you know, workers who want to own <laughs> their own enterprise. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Now those workers are making a decision about how do we divide our money? Would they give the top guy, you know, 2000 times what the guy at the bottom makes? That doesn't make any sense, you know. Maybe the guy at the bottom, he cleans the sinks and the washrooms. Maybe the guy at the top, he makes strategic decisions. All right, so, okay, based on life skills, maybe that guy's elevated to a point where he can do that job. And maybe, maybe he should get 10 times what the guy at the bottom gets, but it shouldn't be 2,000 times or 300 times, right? So there's some, some rational thing. So they're going to divide, they're going to divvy up the profits differently. They're mm -hmm. not going to outsource their jobs to China. They're not going to choose to do that. They're not going to choose to pollute the community they raise their kids in. Mm -hmm. So we would have a completely different world. So I would like to see our national government have a national bank that competes. The, the, the private banks, they, they, the capitalists, they always talk about competition. I'd like them to have some public mm -hmm. banking. Public and we'll, use, we'll use public banks to help support when, a, when an industry decides they're going to sell off a piece of their business. We give those employees the first right of refusal. If they want to purchase and continue to do that, and if it makes sense for society, then I think we should support them and let them run their own business, maybe form a co-op. And now people have a choice. So when they go to this capitalist enterprise that's autocratic and the guy says, well, here's what we're willing to give you for a wage. And you say, no, that doesn't, that's not, that's not enough for me. I can't raise my family on it. You can go join a different type of organization, one that's actually democratically controlled and mm -hmm. work there, right? So, I mean, so there's a million ways to get to design our system and make it better than it currently is to make it work for everybody. But we need all of us to have a very open, frank discussion about what our options are. So the question isn't who's right, it's what's right. And we aren't gonna know until we look at all the facts publicly and then we decide. And like I said, I trust the American people once they're faced with the facts to make the right decision. So we need to include everyone in the conversation. I agree with that. Um, and I like I like your message of inclusiveness and um, relating to the common person, you know, talking directly to those people and to their needs. So that's what, and you've talked a lot about, I didn't even know it was gonna come up this much, the, the, the C word, capitalism. You've brought it up a lot of times. And, um, and that's the reason why I kind of um, brought, posed a question about cannabis because I think a lot of people view cannabis as one issue. Cannabis is, very much an issue that's tied to um, combating the pharmaceutical industry that's very corrupt. And, and I think that's part of the reason why it's still illegal in a lot of jurisdictions is has to do with, because it would be a, a threat to this um, big pharmaceutical corrupt industry. And it's also, it has economic benefits. I see that as well. Scientifically, you see the benefits and also ties into ending the drug war as well. So I think if we look at it from just multifaceted angles, we can see those, um, you know, positive, positive signs of it as well. Right. So we have to understand what are the facts and we have scientists that can study it. No, but when it was illegal, scientists couldn't study it. They weren't going to be funded mm -hmm. for it. Right. Let's for study sure. it. We want to know what the truth is. Right. Why would we, why would we draw a conclusion, make a decision without knowing what the facts are? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't do that in your, your normal life. And even think about the language that we use a minute ago, you said, oh, well, I like that you're for the common people. You know what the common people are? All of us. We're all mm -hmm. common people. See, so even our language is designed to divide us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, there, there aren't common people and uncommon people. They're just people. Right. We're all right. 
Right, right. And that's, I know in my heart, that's what I mean. But we all it. do it. It's automatic. It's built mm-hmm. in. It's part of our culture. It's part you know? of it, yeah. And and, and and the culture, I mean, you know, I'm a baby boomer and he's a Zer and he's a, you know, this. So all these ways that we, and then once you start dividing us and start thinking of us as being different, then you start thinking, though, maybe my rights are greater than your rights. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, I want to ask you before... Before we conclude, I want to ask you, and you don't even have to give me the answer if, if you don't want to, because I'm just saying that you're still. Um, well, this must, boy, this must be a big one coming because you're already. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. No, I'm not setting it up. It's not going to be like a home run type situation. No. Do you have like a slogan in mind? And you don't have to reveal the slogan on here on this particular forum. But have you thought of like a slogan um, for your campaign? Because. When I look at your site, I see the working for working families. Like you seem to emphasize that a lot. And I was just wondering, do you have a slogan in mind? You know, I, I'm not happy with that slogan. Actually, my campaign team is talking about slogans right now. Uh, really? I read that okay. and I said, I mean, I understand it because I know, you know, what, somebody on my campaign decided that they, they wanted to put that there. And, you know, I, I don't manage every single aspect of everything that my campaign does, right? I've got people that that do different things for me. But, you know, I looked at and I said, it, it just doesn't roll off the tongue. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, 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 the, and the current reality is, you you know, uh, slogans are important. People, I mean, the one-liners, you know, people, <laughs> they kind of, they, they stick, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, think about all of the marketing and all of the products and all of the one-liners that, you know, because the important thing, it's, uh, it doesn't matter that, you know, doesn't matter, you know, what they think about it, as long as they remember it is the kind of the, like the, you know, the, the marketing thing. So they have to, you know, remember what, what it is that we're talking about, whatever you're marketing. So um, I like, um, so we're debating uh, different slogans. You know, some of the different things that have come up is the 99 strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what I want to have happen on the, so that, that website of mine isn't fully developed. It's under development now. And so the, the things that people see there um, are not going to be, well, it's, it's, it's going to be something that is continually changing anyway. It's going to be continually being updated. Uh, but mm-hmm. that, that when, when you first come um, and you see John Stassich for president of 2024, I want to make sure that people understand I'm independent. That's what really, uh, that's something that, you know, distinguishes our campaign over, you know, partisan candidates. So the things that, that I, I want people to see right away, I want them to know that what's really different about this guy is he's independent. And I want them to know that I'm part of the 99%. And that's what I want to represent. So we're working on that. You got a, you got a good suggestion for me? No, I'm no, open. no. I'm not a big fan of slogans, personally, <laughs> but I was just curious. It seems like those things stick for whatever reason. Um, they do stick, or at least they're very memorable. Yeah, I, It's funny that you mentioned, um, you talked about being an independent towards the end here. I did get an email that was directed for you in this conversation. This viewer wants to know more about ranked choice voting and how would that benefit an independent of running for office of president in this current system that we have, is that possible to benefit an independent? Because I don't know if that's a universal thing, ranked choice voting across it, the states. 
Yeah, it's not. And some states are adopting it. And there's another voting system called uh, 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 star star voting, where they just say one, you know, they place the number of stars next to the candidate. In other words, it's just another form of so instead of picking numbers one through five, <laughs> you know, uh, but but yeah, no, I, I think in in the current environment, I think it makes sense. Um, uh, I uh, but I want you know there there's certainly questions about the integrity of our system, and there's a lot of people don't trust, it, and they know. You know, I think that the candidates in our current system, the way it's designed, are actually selected in the uh, primary process. One nice thing about being as an independent is I don't have to worry about primaries. I won't be primaried out the way Bernie Sanders was, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you mentioned that. I wasn't even going to talk about that at all. But what under the rules that are currently in place right now, would someone like that be able to run independent after they were primaried out? Uh, Bernie Sanders could have had he chose to, but he said uh -huh. that he's what well, his claim was that he signed an agreement and that he would support the Democratic candidate. And he told everybody up front that was his claim. People wanted him. Jill Stein invited him in in uh, 2015 mm -hmm. when he lost the primary. She said, come and run as a Green Party. I'm inviting you in to maybe compete as a Green Party candidate. So there were a lot of people that wanted Bernie. They liked his message. Um, and, but, um, you know, after losing two primaries and walking away, you know, a lot of people would argue that Bernie actually walked away from his base, not the other way around. I think those people are right. A hundred percent. Are there any, um, concluding words that you have for my audience? Um, I had a pleasure talking with you and hopefully down the road you will come back on that forum and we can discuss some things further, you know, once you do blow up, because I believe that you will become a big name. And um, I think you're very smart right now, getting ahead of that, you know, in 2022, you know, starting this campaign now and not, you know, waiting any longer, because I think time is a really um, valuable asset to have right now. Well, I mean, I guess if I have any last word, I would ask people to start loving one another. Um, I think that that's really important. I think that um, we've gotten away from what we were taught when we were very young, you know, and uh, this finger pointing and this hate, the division, reject all of that. Start taking care of one another and we can do it every day in our lives, right? It starts there. It starts right. So we have to sweep our own doorsteps before we start changing the world. Let's start right at home. Let's look in the mirror and let's ask ourselves, who are you? what do you what do you want to represent what is your life all about you know mm -hmm. so that's that that would be the last thing i have to say i guess nice and, way to close and how and how does that my audience reach you um in case if they want to contact you directly had questions for you what would be the best way to contact you uh, we have a form on our website and there's an open form and you can ask any questions somebody from the campaign will will get with you for sure um, so yeah, uh, I would, I would love to engage people and, um, I would ask that they help me get on the ballot because unless we can do that, nothing else is going to, you know, nothing's going to change. We're going to end up with, uh, the same two choices that we always get. So I'm asking them to, you know, go outside of the box. Don't, don't allow yourself to be divided down out of fear or down party lines, recognize mm -hmm. our, you know, um, that we need each other and that we care about each other and uh, and let's let's work together 
to make this world what we really want. We don't have to accept what we have. It's not good enough for us. I love that. <laughs> That's music to the ears. Um, on that note, John Stasevich, um, potential president of the United States in 2024. I appreciate you accepting that invitation again to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum and beautiful people. Until the next time, have a great day, everyone. Thank you, Kiko. Thank you.